Welcome to episode 5 of The Form Guide, inspiring conversations about our mental health and our form. This week's guest is Rada Bellani, Director of Design and Facilitation at Think Beyond, and we're going to be talking about addiction, recovery and hope. Thanks for joining. So, Rada Balani, welcome to the Form Guide. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Rob. Hi. So, um, you must recognise that tune, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I also it... like the remixes that came through of that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were some good ones, weren't there? Some dancey yeah. ones. Um, but yeah, Whitney Houston, How Will I Know? Um, and so, welcome everybody to the Form Guide. So, today we have Rada Balani. You are Director of Design and Facilitation at Think Beyond, and I'm keen to understand what all that means. Um, you're also one of the, um, the, the first year role models on the Inside Out Leaderboard, which I'm super grateful for um, you, you, you being. Um, we're going to talk about that too, but but welcome. Really good to have you here. Um, and um, I, I remember when we um, first sort of first met. Actually, it was the Legal and General Not a Red Card Awards that that you had, um, had organised, and that first event really inspired me to. Um, go on the journey of sharing my own story of mental ill health and ultimately becoming a campaigner and doing everything uh, I do now. So, yeah, I think you and that that whole event have been part of my influences. So I just wanted to call that out at the top and recognise that and say thank you. Uh, it's Honestly, that's just knowing that we've been the catalyst for something on behalf of our clients. That's kind of the, the hope of all of it, isn't it? Just that one change and the ripple effect of all of, of one person sharing their story. So really, really pleased that that's how it's transpired. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's um, it's certainly created that ripple effect. And we talk about a lot that a lot with the Inside Our Leaderboard. Um, we can start with the, the most important question, I think, which is how are you today? Um, as you can see, I'm a, a seven out of 10 on the form score. Um, I woke up today, Rada, and I was uh, probably about a, a six out of ten. I couldn't, didn't have good sleep, but then I've had a pretty uplifting meeting. Super excited to be chatting to you. So I've definitely seen a rise in in my form score. But how about you? How are you today? Really similar, actually. So I definitely woke up a six, but um, I'm in a little social bubble with a friend of mine whose daughter is my goddaughter, and uh, I help out on a Wednesday by doing the school run. So I get a little bit of godmother, goddaughter time with my goddaughter, which includes a long jog with my dog to get there as well. So I'm, I'm up to a seven now because of that. And because, you know, um, you've asked me to be heard. And actually, that's a really, really sort of significant thing. So, yeah, I'm a seven as well. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, the power of being outside, the power of social connections, the power of exercise, the, you know, the, the kind of love of your goddaughter and your your furry friend there. Um, so, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We can we can wake up on an, on you know average form or even low form, but it's not fixed for the day. We can influence that by our actions and by taking proactive steps. So good to see the form is rising, and, and I'm sure we'll both be an eight by the time this is uh, this this we've had this chat. So um, I'm going to talk through the uh, the quick fire round rather, which you haven't uh, had chance to prepare for, and this is all around if mental health were a, what would it be? So, um, first of all, um, this one might be quite easy for you. If mental health were an animal, what would it be? Um, do you know, actually, I think it would be a chameleon. Um, my experience of mental health would be a chameleon. So the core of it 
is always the same. It's the same body, but it comes out and expresses itself in me in different colors and in different ways, depending on the environment I'm in, but it's ever changing and, you know, both good and bad. I love it. The mental health chameleon. And um, you're right, you know, our mental health, it is ever changing and it can portray different sides. We've had some brilliant answers to that question. And that one is right up there. We last week we had the mental health cockroach because the cockroach being a very, very resilient creature, it can survive without a head, apparently. Um, but we've also in the same vein had the mental health leopard, which is you know quite an elusive animal, hard to uh, hard to find and um, is you know, in the camouflage type stuff. But I, I, I love that. Um, and um, uh, I see in the comment there a lot like my uh, sort of octopus emoji as well that's very color changing uh, depending on mood um, so yeah love that the chameleon mm. so if mental health rider were a color what would it be gosh do you know I I always go to red red is my sort of color I think it's um, it it's pretty fiery for me you know, even when it's on the depressive side, it's intense. There's yeah. an intensity to it um, for me. So probably red. Red, fiery, passionate, intense colour. Um, yeah, I love that. We get a lot of, um, as we're doing a few more of these, blue seems to be quite popular, blue sky or yellow for sun. Um, that's the first red we've had. And, and I think this is the really interesting thing that how we think of our mental health um, and, and, and what these sort of things mean to us. So very, very unique, very personal. So a, a fiery red, I like that. And um, yeah, a bit of the sort of you know, dark red in your, in your jumper there. So um, all good. Okay, so if mental health were a food, this is, uh, this is always an interesting one as well. What would it be? God, that's a really tough one for me, yeah. which we'll get on to. But... Um... Broccoli. 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 Interesting. Why yeah. broccoli? Because it can be really good. Spend too much energy and time thinking about it and put it in the microwave for too long. It can be really bad. But ultimately, it's got some really good properties to it if we look after it well. There you go. I love this. I love this. You're really good at this. You are. So you're. You're really good at it. So, broccoli, and it, and it's it's you know it's quite a complex thing. Yeah, broccoli. There's a lot of repetition in there, but it's unique. Um, there's there's good going in there. Yeah, I like it. The the the, the broccoli. Um, we've had um, we, the my favourite one of of these, and broccoli is a good one. Is is the burger. Um, yeah, because yeah, very messy, um, hard to eat, but you know, gorgeous when you uh, when you get it down. Um, but you're right we will we will come on to that so if if mental health were a song gosh there are two I think for me the first one is uh, Come Undone by Robbie Williams okay yeah um, that's the first song that described everything that was going on in my head for the first time ever someone explained that duality of thought um, you know the, the extremes of thinking is the same emotion expressed in two different ways yeah. Yeah, exactly the same time first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about that and it spoke to me so much um but also I think there's a recovery song for me now which is um Believer by Imagine Dragons yeah um and I think you know not just the energy of the song and the words but there's just something about the, the rhythm and the offbeat of that as well which I really 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 like and there's there's a couple of pauses in there and I think 
the pause is just a, a really important part of my recovery journey. So yeah, those two. Yeah, I love it, and and I, and I love the idea of having a, a song that you associate with 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 your recovery. Um, and I've, I've got a few songs like that, but I. I just feel like, you know, it's the, the sort of music you'd listen to as you emerge from the woods when you've been lost for a while. It's that kind of that kind of feel for it. Um, but music's so powerful, isn't it? We were talking before about how it can sort of take you back. And you were saying songs of the 90s reminding you of your your first car and being in there driving that car. It's very powerful, isn't it? Definitely. And, you know, I, I have to be I, I know weirdly, I know when I'm not in a good place because I listen to more music because I can't listen to podcasts and I can't listen to words and my head is, is too busy. And actually music is a, is a safer place for me to be. Whereas I'm, I'm really a, a talk radio, a podcast sort of person. But when, I'm, when it's tough, I'll, I'll throw on some musicals. I'm not gonna lie. I love a bit of Broadway in the West End as well. Brilliant. Uh, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely brilliant. I, I, I kind of, yeah, I'm a bit the reverse. I know that if I'm not listening to music, um, I'm, I'm sort of neglecting something that keeps me well. Um, you know, I get a bit excited. I'm a DJ. I, I like to kind of dance around the kitchen when I'm cooking or cleaning. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely one of the ways I kind of manage my well-being. But if I'm not doing that, it's like I'm neglecting some of the things that kind of keep me well. Um, good answers. Good answers. So um, we'll, we'll do a couple more. If mental health were a holiday destination for you, uh, what would it be? I spent a long time going to a place in Thailand to train and at its best, it was everything I needed it to be. And at its worst, it was quite destructive for me, but it was also a really safe place for me to be that destructive. So a particular training camp in Thailand and the, the everything I learned about myself out there, probably. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I kind of, I get that, you know, a place, and I like like our mental health, a place can be very different things depending on our state of mind, depending on how we approach it, depending on what we allow to happen um, and how intentional we are. So awesome. Yeah, Thailand's a good one for, for mental health because it's all beautiful but diverse and, you know, lots of stuff going on. I, I always use India as my example. Um, yeah, just that explosion of colour and smell and taste and everything, uh, but quite complex. Um, okay, final one. Um, if mental health were a sound, what sound would it be? An exhale, a really big exhale. Um, I love it. Just because it's an action that we take. Like you will, also, you will always breathe. You will always take that breath in. Yeah. I sometimes hold it. If I'm intentional and I take action. I, I have a choice as to um, my relationship with my mental health. If I don't and I'm holding my breath and I don't take action, then I sort of, you know, take away some of the, the tools in my toolbox, I think. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Um, that is the best answer we've had to, to, to that. And uh, I think, you know, you're the star performer um, in, in the quick fire round, you know, <sighs> and exhale that's just a perfect sound to think we're in control and we're managing uh, our, our mental well-being brilliant brilliant there's a lot of inspiration there a lot of inspiration so we're going to talk um, a little bit about your journey we're going to talk about addiction we're going to talk about recovery we're going to talk about hope um, and I do remember that 
um, when we first shared our stories, rather, we were sitting in the Ned in, in that busy lobby uh, bar um, a good few years ago now. And it was a really powerful meeting for me where we both opened up and I shared my story of what it's like to come to terms with with bipolar and you know the, the real dark times in my journey and how with the love of close friends and family I kind of recovered from that and learned to manage and then I guess the story of, of coming out and I, I do remember it vividly and, and it was also it was at that point where you were really considering whether it was the right time for you to be more open publicly and, and share your story and I'm keen to explore that but yeah, talk, talk us through your journey here, if you don't mind, with as much or as little as you're happy to share. Thanks, Rob. Um, I remember that conversation vividly as well. It was, you know, these these little steps that really, you know, those conversations filled into being able to have this conversation today. And I guess what I would say first and foremost is that the language I can use today to talk about my journey is only as a result of doing work and, and recovery. And, and so, you know, that sort of caveat number one, really, that um, the, the, the emotional literacy I have now is, is a direct result of, of getting well, but the, the opposite was true. You know, I, I just have never, I have, my journey is one of doing anything I possibly could to not be inside my own body and mind. Mm. That's ultimately it. You know, this being maladjusted to everything around me and not understanding why. And I thought it was for outside reasons. You know, I was larger than everyone else. When I grew up, I grew up in the whitest part of the country. I had a different color skin. I was pretty bright to be honest. So I was also a bit of a geek um, and all of that sort of stuff. And, but also on the inside, I just had all of these confusing things going on in my mind and just didn't, just felt different, you know, and, not that I just, not only did I feel as though I didn't fit in, what I understand now is what was that there wasn't a sense of belonging. You know, mm. if we, I think about belonging as being, being part of something without having to change oneself, whereas fitting in requires some sort of movement. And all of that to say that anything and everything for me is a case of one is too much and a million is never enough. Mm. And that's true of reading books. That's true of exercise. That's true of food. That's true of drinking. That's true of, you know, substances. That's true of work. That's true of exercise. That's true of not eating. And so that's really been my journey. Um, and, you know, running alongside that is I can look back now and know that I had mental health, mental ill health as a youngster. Mm -hmm. we, we lived in a different time and it, I didn't know that what was going on in my head I didn't know what it was so I just carried on and was fine and on the outside I was and I think that ultimately it took it took until my early 20s you know when I let a friend in a bit when when I when someone saw the darkness mm. really for for me to 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 get a little bit of help and there were lots of clues beforehand, you know, I, because I didn't know who I was because I felt so different and I was creating this persona and putting this image out to the world. I'd staked my sort of identity on being a sports person, um, being first on the team sheet. I knew who I was because of the number on my back because uh, I had a captain's armband on because I was on these committees and I did all of this stuff. Yeah. And I got really injured in my first year at university and everything that was my identity went away. And really, that's really where some of the behavioural stuff 
started to, to, to come into play, whether that was the food, the self-harm, the drinking, whatever it was. Um, but it really wasn't until my early 20s, until a really good friend said, you're not okay, let's get you some help. Um, so I, I was at that point where I was diagnosed with depression. Um, what I now know is that I've had an eating disorder since I was seven, right. uh, depression and anxiety all of that time. I probably was only diagnosed with ADHD very recently and complex PTSD really recently, but invariably they've been there for a really long time. And all of these other behaviors, food, exercise, drinking, everything else, self-harm, all of those are symptoms. So my journey has been about getting rid of these symptoms, these behavioral symptoms that were effectively coping strategies. Mm. This is how I dealt with the fact that I couldn't deal with being me and being in my own skin and in my own head. My journey has been taking away one of the, each of these one at a time and doing that work to find some peace inside to belong and to not try to fit in, but to belong in my own self so I can belong in the world. And so, you know, that ultimately meant that, you know, I, I don't think that everyone with those mental health diagnoses will also end up being an addict. I don't believe that. Yeah. I just happen to be, I just happen to have it in me that one will never ever be enough for me. Yeah. Um, well, sorry, that one will always be too much and a million will never be enough yeah. in me that I can't have one of anything because I'm not having it for its own sake. It's the reason I'm doing it that makes me an addict. That's not true of everyone that has those mental health diagnoses. No. I just know for me that today, now, six and a half years sober, that um, I, I know that my primary disease, if you want to call it a disease, is an eating disorder. Um, and all of those other things, but I couldn't deal with any of them until I was physically not drinking uh, and emotionally sober. And the reason I say that is I spent the best part of 10 years not drinking. Yeah. I understand my alcoholism to be a chronic disease that gets progressively worse. And in those 10 years, that's when my eating disorder turned into what we would visibly understand to be an eating disorder, a, a socially acceptable one. Mm. And that's when it became anorexia. That's when I thought I cracked it. That's when I thought I was absolutely winning um, because for the first time in my life, I was the same size as other people. Right. Um, but I was so, so, so unwell at that time. And I wasn't drinking, mm. but I, I, I was managing my thoughts and my behaviors with external things instead of doing the internal things. And that's, you know, it's a 40 coming up to a 40 year journey. So I guess that's just a very sort of uh, scattergun snapshot of bits of it. Wow. Well, thank, thank you for sharing it. And thank you for sharing it here. Um, and congratulations on, on six and a half years of, 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 of being sober. It's a great, it's a great achievement and an ongoing, um, you know, an ongoing process, isn't it? But I think there's, there's so much resonated with my own journey really, because um, I always felt I had to, be the best at whatever I was doing to the, the point of extremes and, I, and I've still got this it's still it's still part of what I'd call my superpower and, I, and I'm probably you're making me question a little bit of um, the work that I haven't yet done in my own journey in, in trying to attain balance um, 
because I'll, I, yeah, I'll either be cycling the Tour de France, um, becoming the best mental health campaigner I could possibly be, or beating people at exams at school because I want to come top. And there's some sort of drive in there for me to prove that I'm good enough that goes back right through to my childhood. Um, and like you, I had, a, I had a boss at the time when I was about 30 who said, you need some help, you're not well. Um, and she she helped me get that help but it's interesting isn't it that we can go through so many years of I guess not not being totally aware that we've even got a problem that you know this is just us we are the people that strive we are the people that go to extremes to be first on the team sheet to to do whatever and how, how did that realization that you needed to come to a, a, a process of recovery happen for you and what was that process like? Sure. Um, so I think from the first starting to get help around the age of 23, it's 10 years before I really did anything other than weekly therapy, which wasn't really anything other than just having someone to go and share process a week with them. You know, I didn't, I couldn't answer the question, how are you? It's still a question I find quite hard today. I can tell you what I've done, can't tell you how I am. And that's yeah. really what I did for 10 years. And I, my, all of the time, you know, I would, I would run to therapy and run home, having already done six hours of training and not eaten anything. So all of that time was just a steadying time. But in that time, I, I think I could see my life getting smaller and smaller and smaller um, on a very real level. On, a, on an outside level, it looked like my career was doing pretty well. And, you know, on the outside, Finally, Rada had cracked this overweight thing, even though it wasn't an overweight thing, it was an eating disorder, mm. you know, and I wasn't drinking and all of that sort of stuff. But I was dying on the inside. Mm. And, and that went and went and went and, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think that my relationship with myself and my disconnect, everything sort of, I didn't really exist from the neck down. I couldn't connect with my body in any way. Yeah. Um, and I was living in my head and I was trying to outthink my way. You know, I didn't really feel anything. I was kind of numb all of that time. Um, and, and to be honest, I think that alcohol was the thing that needed to happen to bring me to consciousness, ironically. Right. To really bring me into, to, to make what I was going through visible. To myself because I couldn't see it I think it I think it had to be something like that I think I would have continued on and on and on in this utter turmoil of constantly using behaviors to not exist properly had I not ultimately run that risk of of the facade all coming down because of drinking because at that point it was all going to crumble because everyone was going to find out that None of it was true, right? That really low self-esteem and that massive ego. If anyone hasn't has hasn't heard the song "Come Undone," go go listen to it and listen to the words and and really, you know, so self-aware, so full of shit. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's how. So that better than need to be better than ultimately feeling like the tiniest, smallest thing in the world, um, and really having no relationship with myself. It just got worse and worse and worse until until it started costing me more than money. Yeah. Until it started costing me more than money, I think. What do you mean by that? That 
there, there was there was only existence like I, I there was only you know I was at this point I was, I was still teaching fitness classes as a hobby before work and I don't remember half of the classes I taught and I was all I could think about all day every day was how to get away from people and be alone and how could I dial in what I needed to dial in and it it just got to the point where I got really lucky got really lucky that I have always had the most amazing GP that's that's pretty much it just had the most amazing GP she's incredible uh, I had brilliant therapist and a brilliant psychiatrist and they off their own bat organized a three-way conference call to make sure that they were doing the right thing by me. And, and, and what ultimately happened was there was an understanding that, you know, there was stuff that I could work on, mental health stuff, there was medication and there was talking therapy that we could put all together, but none of it would work if I was taking, if I was drinking, taking mind alter substances. So the, the key was get sober and then do the work, can't do it the other way around. Um, right. And stopping drinking and then finding something drinking was solving a problem for me until it stopped solving a problem right yeah i don't have brilliant drinking stories i don't have exciting drinking stories my drinking was sad and lonely and solitary i have great sober stories and that's the best part of it right that's recovery brilliant. but i i needed needed something to to provide what drinking had provided me with and that's really when my eating disorder came back into play, but I wasn't drinking at the same time. So, you know, that, that, I guess that was the journey. It took 10 years. Um, I got sober at 33, which means you all know how old I am now. Well, I can't do that math. So don't, <laughs> yeah, um, you don't look a day over 21 to me. So it's, it, it, it just shows how complex this stuff is um, and how intertwined different challenges that can affect our mental health and, and that are uh, mental ill health challenges um, and it's really interesting the, um, the 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 journey you had to go on to sort of un, un, unpick the uh, the drinking to then be able to deal with the the, the eating disorder um, and, and since I've known you over the last few years I've, I've been super impressed with the the level of commitment to your recovery and you um and the intentional nature of it you you did it with intent and you know you took some time out of work and you went to the us to to uh, a center to the, to recover um is that what it took did you did you kind of did it, did it require that level of commitment to get to 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 where you are now and the the platform you've got to go forward yeah i think it did and i think the most important thing is that i didn't do it you know, this isn't, I, I had to take some actions, but really it was the, the love of the, the people around me. It was a faith in a universe that has got my best interests at heart. You know, it's, I, have a, I have a spiritual connection now that I didn't have before, um, but also that I know that I'm not in this alone. Mm. That's really it. And, you know, I think it, it got to the point where, it was really made really clear to me by a brilliant therapist who had the integrity to say, I can't work with you because you, you came here with the mental health stuff and, and you were already sober and 
you, you thought you'd dealt with the eating disorder stuff, but I can't help you because your primary issue is your eating disorder and everything that that's covering up. And I'm not the right person for you. And that is, she could have, we could have kept working on the other stuff and chipping away at it for sure. But that, that was the thing that shifted a, a two, three year journey that took me to the place where I could really see that all of my behaviors, all of that exhaustive thought that it takes to be in active addiction, whether whatever it is, was the same with my food and it had been like that forever. And that, you know, I, my anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder kept switching from one to the other. And it got to the point where I thought about drinking again. And I was really close to because I didn't want to deal with it. And that journey and, and sharing with friends that I'd got to that point and peers and others in recovery was part of that journey to start saying, you know what, I've got to do this properly. I've got to do it properly once and for all. I was you know, coming up to 40 and going, I can't be a 40 year old woman who's scared of a supermarket who grew up running a small shop with her family and is scared of a supermarket who mm. doesn't know how to eat three meals a day. And also I have a goddaughter, as I said, and I'd already lied to her a few times about why I wasn't having lunch with her. And I didn't want to be that. I want to be a role model for her. Yeah. Um, this incredible, incredible cheeky little five-year-old that I want to be able to have lunch with her. Yeah. And so I chose to, um, to say that I needed to give it a shot to truly get well, not this pseudo recovery of just getting by. Um, so yeah, my Beyond Sport, Think Beyond, the organization I work for was so supportive. You know, they gave me those, those three months, they supported me all the way through, they supported me in my re-entry back into the business. And I went to a treatment center in the US that was based on mental health trauma and, and, it, and within it I had a specialist eating disorder unit. And that's really where real recovery and real life um, has, has started for me. Brilliant. Um, this, 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 there's something in your story which is just such a strong message of hope for me um, and, and for people who might be you know, sitting with in a similar position to where you were before the, that 10 years of recovery and thinking this is impossible. This is impossible that I will recover from this. I know the worst part of my depression, part of my bipolar, I thought this is futile. Um, and it isn't because there is, a, there is hope. But I think your story is such a strong beacon of hope for people that might be feeling overwhelmed. And so thank you for sharing it. Um, I, and, and we don't need to go into details, um, and it wouldn't be right to do so, of, of you know, what you went through in, in your recovery. But I, there's one thing that I always remember about you telling me that when I asked you the question, what really worked for you? What was helpful? And you spoke about breath work. Um, and even the the exhale bit that you spoke about in the the quick fire round uh, sort of backs that up and talk, talk me through that part if you can because I think we can all benefit from breathing a bit better can't we sure um so if I could think my way to getting well I'd have been well a long time ago right yeah. and um the truth is that there's an amazing book called um the body keeps the score, the body holds the score, and it's how we store all of these emotions and traumas in our body and, and actually releasing them from there. That's for me, anyone with an eating disorder has some sort of destructive relationship with their body. And breathwork wasn't about talking it through and working it out. I understand why 
I'm in the position I'm in. I understand why I did what I did. That information is useful and really important to a point, but it doesn't fundamentally shift my relationship with myself. Yeah. That information is really useful in the, to the extent that I know that when people say nice things about me, I haven't tricked them into it and I can start to believe that. But that doesn't mean I can feel good about myself. I know that cutting myself through self-harm isn't uh, the doesn't work, but I can't feel that it isn't useful. And what breathwork has done with a brilliant practitioner and then the ability to talk about it afterwards and understand it has just begun to unlock whatever I'd been holding and storing in my body in that time. And you know, just the act of circular breathing and, and someone taking you through a process. I, I honestly don't know how it works. And I think that's the best part because I don't need to know. Mm. Um, and, and that's I, just normal breathing. There's a wonderful breathing exercise called four, seven, eight breathing. Yeah. Uh, it's um, in through the nose for four, hold it at the back of your throat for seven, out through your mouth for eight. And you do it four times over. And just immediately it grounds you and it brings you back into your body. You know, one of the things I always say to people when they're talking to me is, okay, where are your feet? Where's your head? Are they both in the same place right now in this moment? <laughs> really that's what four, seven, eight breathing does. Um, but breathwork unlocked things from the past and the present and what I hope for the future in a way that talking therapy couldn't, but I couldn't do one without the other. Amazing. Uh, it's, I was laughing there because, you know, I often think my head is nowhere near where my feet are. Um, yeah, and, and, and my wife would, would back that up as well. Um, but that's really interesting. Um, and um, the, the idea of being able to feel uh, through, through breath, when I guess some of us have, have, have avoided feeling, you, you mentioned you couldn't feel from your, your head down, the, 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 the motion in our body, I think that's pretty powerful. Um, really, really interesting. Um, when, when, we, when we met back in the NED and we were talking about coming out and, and sharing story more widely, widely um, and you know, I, I spoke to you about the, the sort of aims of the, the Inside Out Leaderboard, which was to you know, showcase leaders in our workplaces who are open about the fact that they are, are managing a mental health challenge to kind of create that ripple effect that we we discussed at the start of normalizing the conversation and more and more leaders following suit. And I, I remember you kind of debated um, and took some advice as to whether this was the right time for you to share your story. And I'm really grateful that you you kind of did and put your name to the leaderboard. So thank you. What what, what what was it about that time that you felt, okay, I want to, um, I want to contribute here and I want to put my name to it and I want to be more open. Um, and I guess you're, you're being even more open now in this conversation. What, what's driving those things for you? So I think it's part of a need to be of service to the world, um, to know that I've always been, I've never really been in an environment where people who look like me uh, are also there. And so I felt that there was partly it was that, but partly it was me believing 
that there was hope that things could be different that things could be better that I was allowed to have a life that I was worthy only came from other people talking and sharing their stories so that's one part of it the other part is I have a platform through my work um I I really struggle having a coffee with someone but I'm fine on a stage and that's part of you know the stuff that sits inside me but I do know that when I am on a stage that I can connect with people and I do have a voice and it feels like I've been given that and so I should use it because it was freely given to me um but there is that big part of when I have shared with colleagues with people I manage little bits when I've seen that they've struggled I have become a better leader I and I see my role as a leader to be unlocking the giving people the ability to unlock their own potential and be as brilliant as they can be that that's how I see my role as a leader and doing that with my colleagues with teammates was really powerful in those small moments and I just wondered what that might be amplified for another brown girl working in sport if I'm being honest because there aren't loads of us and there weren't loads of us um but also just from anyone really that like there is nothing special about what I have done or I haven't it's that the only thing that I did was not do it alone and I sort of feel like if that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is that every, mental health keeps wants to keep us apart mental ill health wants to keep us apart and I do know that the opposite to that is to connect and I felt like this was a way to do it I suppose yeah amazing um so much in there that um and I, I, I listened to a podcast the other day um, about sort of the long form podcast, which is sort of 90 minutes. And I feel we could we could we could talk for that long because there's so many angles that I want to explore there. Um, I, I think we'll, we'll come back to sport and I, I want to talk about sport and, and the, the 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 kind of the role of sport in in smashing the stigma of mental ill health, but promoting positive mental health as well. Um, I'd like to touch on identity because you, you you alluded to it, and you, you know, I think it is important to talk about those intersections. And how how do you feel your um, your your identity growing up in uh, the whitest of white areas, as you mentioned, impacted on your challenges or intersected with your your challenges? I definitely think it did. Um, I, I think that there's an element of it not being talked about, um, which I think is part of it. But I also, you know, I think it was more what it did to me internally that I, you know, my parents are just, they adore me so much and they're, they're amazing. And I really get that generational trauma. They're both effectively, you know, came here as refugees in one way, shape or form, you know, they, they've both been displaced in some way, shape or form through empire. And they came here and they, they came into a country that didn't want them. And I think that I also needed to own that I was uncomfortable with the color of my skin because it was different and I was told it was different. And I, I think it has impacted. I think the extent to it, how it's impacted, I don't really know. I What I do know is that over the past year, something has changed for me. Something has changed. I feel like I've, I feel like there's more permission to, to really recognize 
all of the microaggressions that have existed um, through, you know, through my through treatment, through my through playing sports, through my work, ev everywhere, but also, you know, recognizing that I, I have been part of the problem as well, and yeah. doing my own work around that. Um, there, there is a role model piece here, I think. I, I don't know how it's played out for me personally, um, but I do know that over the past year, I have sought out places of recovery that are for that are based on people of colour. And that I don't know why, but I do know that I've needed them. And I do know that they have given my recovery another level of depth and understanding that helps me understand my story and not repeat it and make better choices. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. And, 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 and how easy or difficult was it to find those places of recovery you mentioned? Um, I think it was, once again, the universe more than anything else, right? I yeah. think it presented them to me. I, I, as I said, none of this, I, I have a sort of a, a peer-led approach to my recovery in that I engage, I, I work in groups with others that, that struggle with the same things I struggle with and we collectively work together through it. And, and I think as a result of that, um, there was, there was, you know, some one other person and, and our paths crossed because they were supposed to realistic, yeah. but I, I need, I need to believe that there's something bigger out there because otherwise the risk is that Rada thinks she's in control and that never ends well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is there is something uh, bigger out there, and I've I've noticed that um, since I've been on this mission of um, you know, trying to make positive change around mental ill health, and the universe does conspire to to help you along the way. It certainly does. Um, I, I want to touch on sport now, and and get an understanding for those that are sort of listening and watching this that of, of, of what you do in the sort of day job, but also you you talk about the platform that you have and actually you're brilliant on stage and don't how, how, isn't that the biggest travesty of the pandemic that we can't be on a physical stage connecting with an audience right now i really miss it you know i really miss it and i do connect through through this medium for sure but uh, hopefully we can get back on a stage soon but talk, talk me through your role a little bit and and that that idea of sport being a medium to uh, facilitate and a catalyze change where mental health and well-being is concerned sure um so, you know, I, I work for, as part of a holdings group called Benchmark, and I work for particular organisations beyond sport, which is about harnessing the, the power of sport for sustainable social change and, and really advancing that movement. And then I work for Think Beyond, which is a consultancy that helps organisations do what they do better using sports, um, bringing social objectives alongside business objectives and using sport as the bridge builder for that change. And... I suppose it works in a number of ways. We've got how do how does the actual movement and participation and playing of sports or activity or exercise or play offer positive mental well-being? Yeah. How can it be used more intentionally in a therapeutic sense? Mm -hmm. um, how can it be used more intentionally from a connection sense? And how can it be used more intentionally from an educational sense? So there's those elements that we also look at. But then there's sport as a platform in and of itself and how do those people we look up to, those role models, show that their real strength is in their vulnerability and how does that open up conversations that perhaps otherwise weren't opened before 
And then there's the other part of it, which is the sector in and of itself. How do we support and allow for players, for coaches, for staff, for administrators, for the people that work the turnstiles? How do we allow for all of us to have and accept that we all have mental health and those of us that have mental um, health challenges, how do we um, create a space where they are they are not seen as anything other than you you might also have torn your ACL and that yeah. we deal with them in, in the same way. Um, so it, it's multifaceted. And I think our platform, you know, you mentioned the Legal in General event, we were um, really grateful to, to be, to, to work with Legal in General on creating their Not a Red Card um, campaign, which is around, you know, destigmatizing initially the conversations about mental health in the workplace, but then going further, how do we create places of mental well-being so that work doesn't ultimately become a causal factor mm-hmm. in um, and changing that conversation. Then out in the US, we, we look at it slightly differently through a, um, a network called the Stay in the Game Network. And that's about the sector in and of itself, being well and promoting wellness and supporting conversations, but also around how do we use the mechanism of sport for mental well-being. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are incredible, incredible therapy-based interventions that use sport there, you know, Surf therapy is, is absolutely one that's coming to the fore at the moment. And there's an incredible organization in the US called Doc Wayne Youth Services that takes a clinical approach and utilizes sport as part of its recovery and rehabilitation. So it is multifaceted, but there is something really, there has always been something powerful about those people that with gold medals around their neck saying that I can have a gold medal and I can also take antidepressants and I can also have days where I don't know that I can get out of bed today. And all of those things can coexist. If nothing else, this journey for me has been about being able to hold two opposing things as truths and for those two truths to be equally valuable. You know, how can those things coexist? And, and you know, the binary nature of an addict is all or nothing, right? And I, and it's re- that, that's about living in the gray. And I think that that's really where sport allows us to do that and those role models allow us to do that yeah i think you're right i've seen i've seen uh, jack jack green olympian just tune in um and, and like our chat and yeah jack has uh, someone that's competed in two olympics and and you know shares his story of of, of mental ill health um and and there are many athletes doing that i mean even the, the greatest ever olympian michael phelps it was really interesting to or uh, the most decorated Olympian greatest would be a, a, a difficult term, but the most, <laughs> the winningest, to use an American term, to, to come out and share his, his story. And I think this, there are so many examples of that, but they are powerful because we're seeing our heroes be vulnerable, aren't we? And that's, that's super powerful. And, and, and I guess a final, well, two final questions, actually, because I, I want to be greedy. Um, one, what, what is your hope for, for sport and how sport can, can take this agenda forward? Um, that it continues to be intentional mm. with its, with how it does it and that it, you know, I, I described four or five different ways that it could do it. I think it needs to do all of them with intent. And I just, I also think that I, I, I really believe in the intentional use of sport, but I also just also believe in the joy of play. Yeah. And, and so like, yes, let's go with intention in all of these things, but let's not lose the simplicity of, you know, hitting the punch bag a few times and just missing occasionally and finding that money yeah. and releasing tension, you know. 
yeah absolutely the joy the joy of sport the joy of taking part i agree with you it's a a good a good thing to leave us with and then one 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 piece of um advice um or thought for the people out there that might be more at the start of their journey to recovery that might not have even be aware yeah that they're aware that they need to do something but they haven't had that friend yet tap them on the shoulder and say I think you need help you're not well like like that happened for you what would be your advice for for those people and I know it's a generalization um you know I think the most important thing is all of the things in your head that are telling you not to do it those are the, those are the things that will, will keep you in that that place I, what I can promise and I really do believe I can promise this is if you share it it exposes it you know our secrets keep us sick the shame that we that I feel that kept me quiet has slowly been eroded every time I've had a conversation like this that exposes yeah. it a bit more um and, and I would say one other thing the stereotypes of what addiction looks like are, are, don't make any sense you know at no point have I ever looked anorexic but I have existed on 100 calories and eight hours of exercise a day um, and at no point have I worn some string to hold my trousers up and lay down on a park bench to drink special brew but I still had a drinking problem mm. you know and so give yourself permission to be exactly as you are not as you think those diagnoses should be and just ask one person for help yeah if my dog comes through yeah <laughs> uh, perfect <laughs> perfect there's that one person um yeah. br brilliant give yourself permission to be who you are um and know that what you're experiencing is is valid that is your truth um rather that is amazing um thank you so much if anyone's felt triggered by anything they've heard um on the live show please drop me a note if you're watching this um uh, after the event yeah, please use your GP um, and, and seek help if, if um, any issues come to bear. Um, but Rada, thank you so much. And, and I'm forever grateful for that legal and general event because it, it did change my life um, in a, a positive direction. So thank you for helping put that on and for talking to me today. This has been such a powerful conversation. Thank you, Robin. Just really grateful for the work that you do and that you continuously do to create spaces like this for people like me to be heard because I think being heard and needing to be heard and seen and validated is the biggest part of recovery. So thank you. Ah, pleasure. Well, we see you and we hear you. Thank you so much. <laughs>